Hey everybody, Matt here with the Nostaljunk Podcast. Today we are celebrating the 40th anniversary of the original Friday the 13th. But before we get into that, let's take a look at Sean S. Cunningham's career. Cunningham was working for a documentary company in New York during the 60s and released a film called The Art of Marriage in 1970. The poster for The Art of Marriage boasts an X rating and that no one under the age of 21 will be admitted. This movie is categorized as what's called a white coder or a sexploitation film. Simply put, it's an independently produced softcore porn. So there's nudity, but no actual graphic scenes of sexuality. This film was shot with a budget of $3,500, and Sean has stated he had no idea what he was doing when he filmed the movie. Oddly enough, when this film was released in a couple of theaters in 1970, word of mouth made it a hit, grossing $100,000. Cunningham rented his first office space and began working on his second film, Together, starring Marilyn Chambers, is essentially a remake of The Art of Marriage. A then young and aspiring filmmaker, Wes Craven, was looking to break into the film industry. He worked with Cunningham on Together as the assistant editor. Both he and Cunningham had to mix the film with no funding. Just one year after Together was released in 1971, Marilyn Chambers became a household name as she was most known for acting in porn films. Hallmark Releasing bought the film for $10,000, and due to the sexual nature of the film, they wanted to exploit it. Ads were placed in papers, and according to Cunningham, people were lined up all the way around the block to see it. The film grossed what was considered a lot of money, in Cunningham's words, phenomenal business. So it was another win for him, but it was also the first project that Cunningham and Craven worked on together. Hallmark releasing cut Cunningham a check for $90,000, and Hallmark wanted to see what the duo could do with a horror movie. In 1972, The Last House on the Left was released. The Last House on the Left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Take as much as you can. Hey there, I'm Lisa. And I'm Agnes. And together we are Sass and Sips, a watch rewatch podcast. We want to personally invite you to check out our podcast, where we'll be discussing TV shows from two perspectives. One who has seen the show before. And one who's not so sure. While we drink a lot. I mean, like a lot, a lot. (laughs) Every season, we will focus on a new show. And for our first season, we have chosen the iconic show Lost. We hope that you will come over and check us out. We can be found on your favorite podcast platform or at sassandsips.com. If you're down for drinks, friends, and television, then make sure you listen and subscribe. Because we're down for all of it. Yes. 
So listen with your bestie, open your favorite bottle, and sip and sass with Sass and Sips. Stoner Chicks. We're four friends who met through comedy and bonded through weed. I'm Grace Penzel. I'm Kayla Teal. I'm Stephanie Thompson. I'm Phoebe Richards. If you love smoking weed and laughing with your friends, this podcast is for you. Weekly episodes will drop on Fridays starting April 2nd. So subscribe now to Stoner Chicks wherever you get your podcasts. Coming to your favorite podcatcher soon. Last House on the Left was directed by Craven and produced by Cunningham. The film was made on a microscopic budget of $87,000 and was filmed in 1971 throughout New York and Connecticut. It was released in the summer of 1972 and grossed over $3 million. Although the film was heavily censored and banned in several countries, the film was actually well-received by critics. In 1973, Cunningham returned to make a sexploitation film called Case of the Full Moon Murders. Unlike before, this one actually contained a whodunit and how she did it. With a budget of $250,000 and casting real little leaguers, Cunningham went from X-rated to G-rated. Here come the Tigers in 1978. Also released in 1978 was another family comedy, titled Manny's Orphans. Although Wes Craven was no longer collaborating with Cunningham, Steve Miner was the editor on the last three films. In fact, Steve Miner was a production assistant on Last House on the Left. What's important to note is that Steve Miner would go on to direct Friday the 13th Part 2 and 3. In 1978, John Carpenter's Halloween really set the bar for horror movies to turn a huge profit. With a budget somewhere in the vicinity of $300,000 to $325,000, it grossed $70 million in 1978, becoming one of the most profitable independent films of all time, and is still cited as being one of the most influential films not only for the slasher genre, but for horror movies as well. Halloween featured a stalking slasher, which brings us to 1979. The 1979 horror movement saw flying spheres and struggling artists as they drilled into skulls. Strangers were calling and tourists were trapped. There was an alien above and a house telling you to get out. Inspired by the success of Halloween, Cunningham wanted Friday the 13th to be a roller coaster ride and to be considered the most terrifying film ever made. That was the exact same phrase he used in the full page ad he took out in Variety magazine in 1979. Keep in mind, Cunningham did not have a completed script at this point. Friday the 13th was tentatively titled A Long Night at Camp Blood. Victor Miller, who worked on Here Come the Tigers and Manny's Orphans with Cunningham and Minor, and would later write for soap operas, began developing the concept of a serial killer who was avenging her child's death. 
After funding was secured, locations were scouted next. A Boy Scout camp, Camp Nibi Bosco, located in Hardwick, New Jersey, served as the setting for the film, which was still being penned at this point. Once Miller finalized the script for Friday the 13th, the cast was composed of young and likable actors appearing as seemingly responsible camp counselors. Talent scouts Julie Hughes and Barry Moss procured actors with soap opera backgrounds, and although one was killed off in the film, he slashed his way to superstardom, Kevin Bacon. Adrian King was cast as the industrious and clever final girl, Alice, and veteran actor Betsy Palmer was offered the role of Mrs. Voorhees. Cunningham needed a terrifying actor to portray the psychotic nature of Mrs. Voorhees, which seemed strange for Palmer as she was most known for being a wholesome actor. Palmer accepted the role for no other reason other than to buy a new car because she felt the movie was a piece of shit, but accepted the role nonetheless. My agent called and said, how would you like to do a movie? I said, great. I said, I have not done a movie in years. And I said, California? He said, no. It's going to be shot in New Jersey. And it's 10 days work. You'll make $1,000 a day. And I said, great. He said, well, there's one catch. And I said, well, what's that? He said, it's a horror film. I said, oh, no. No, no, no. Thank you, no. It's bad enough that I know I'm known as a game player doing I've Got a Secret game show that I did for 10 or 11 years, and I said no, and then to be added, a horror film, mm-mm, mm-mm. I said, send me the script. He sent me the script, I read it, and I said, what a piece of shit. <laughs> anyway, I said, nobody is going to see this thing. It will come, it will go, that's the end of it, you know, I'll do it. I called him and I said, I'll do it. That's my part of the story. Palmer has stated that her portrayal of Mrs. Voorhees was that of a decent mother, with some wires crossed. As a character actor, Palmer was able to channel Voorhees' motivations, thereby justifying why a mother would kill to avenge her child's death. Miller took the Norman and Mother Bates dynamic from Psycho and flipped it. Mrs. Voorhees kills those who most resemble those who irresponsibly let her son Jason drown all those years ago. That being said, even during the filming, the script was under frequent revisions that were occurring on an almost daily basis. Borrowing from the sturdy and well-proven formula established in Halloween, Miller plug-and-played the Friday the 13th characters, setting and, of course, kills, aspiring to attract similar box office success as Halloween. And if imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, Friday the 13th was only the beginning of how slasher films became mainstream horror for the 80s. Unlike Halloween, however, the audience is unaware that Mrs. Voorhees is the killer until the final act of the film. Speaking of kills, the Sultan of Splatter himself Tom Savini was hired as a special effects technician. Savini had already made waves with George A. Romero's Martin and Dawn of the Dead and would continue to dominate the genre by raising the realism of gore. A styrofoam axe to the face, a gimmicked arrow complete with real pig's blood, and a sputtering decapitation. 
Savini even supplied his own hands, as Mrs. Voorhees' hands, complete with hairy knuckles, grasping at the air while her headless torso sinks out of frame in the finale. We would be remiss without acknowledging one of the most terrifying entities of the film, the score. Friday the 13th would not be complete without Harry Manfredini's grating, tension-heightening score and iconic cue which has since permeated pop culture to evoke an evil presence in the woods. Is simply Harry taking from Kill and Mom, which was Mrs. Voorhees channeling Jason's directive Harry previously worked on Cunningham's Here Come the Tigers and Manny's Orphans. How did Friday the 13th perform at the box office? Well, it grossed close to $60 million on a budget of $550,000. Not bad considering their goal was to make a profitable Halloween copy. And despite critical hatred and contempt for the film, the filmmakers, and the moviegoers, Friday the 13th has become one of the most iconic horror franchises, with nine sequels, one reboot, and a crossover film with fellow celebrated slasher in Freddy vs. Jason, Jason is introduced as a full-grown, undead killing machine in Friday the 13th Part 2 and trades in the burlap bag mask for the infamous hockey mask in Friday the 13th Part 3. Well, I hope you enjoyed the backstory on the filmmakers and the movie. So let's hit play and celebrate the 40th anniversary of the original Friday the 13th. Share your thoughts. What are your favorite moments, characters, kills? Is Tom Savini's recommendation for Jason to pop up out of the water at the end of the film one of his greatest contributions? I think so. Well, this is Matt of the Nostalgia Junk Podcast signing off. You're all doomed. Welcome to Bitch Watch. Hi, I'm Sly. I'm Witsy. And we're two bitches watching TV. We're a recap and shit talk show. That's right. We watch hours and hours and hours of TV, so you don't have to. You can listen and laugh along with us everywhere you listen to podcasts and find us on Instagram and Twitter at BitchWatchPod. Is our show original? No. Entertaining? We hope so. This is BitchWatch. What's up, dudes? I'm Jerry D of Totally Rad Christmas, the podcast that talks all things Christmas in the 80s. Toys, movies, specials, music, books, fashion, and fads. If it was gnarly during Christmas in the 80s, he's got it covered. Wait, is there a lot of things to talk about for the 80s and Christmas? Well, you got the movie giants like Christmas Vacation, Scrooged, and A Christmas Story. There are TV specials like Muppet Family Christmas, Claymation Christmas Celebration, and a Garfield Christmas Special. Plus classics shown every year. You also jam out to Last Christmas, Do They Know It's Christmas, and Christmas in Hollis. But most of all, it was a time for the most bodacious, best-selling Christmas toys ever. 
like He-Man, G.I. Joe, Transformers, and Cabbage Patch Kids. Yes, them too. We cover them all, plus much more, including standard segments like Hap Hap Happiest Memory, Gagging with the Spoon, The Other Half of the Battle, and Chant with the Littles. So tune in to Totally Rad Christmas everywhere you get your podcasts. Turn the clock back and dive into those warm and fuzzy memories. Later, dudes!